Hello, my name is Rob Salgaro Gomez. I am a research fellow of the Australian Research Society and I am also an associate editor of Journal of Ecology. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing a very accomplished senior scientist. His name is Hal Caswell and he's joining us from the Netherlands. Is that correct, Hal? Yes, from University of Amsterdam. Would you please mind introducing yourself briefly? Uh, introducing myself. Um, so I am, uh, I've been for a long time a scientist in the biology department at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And then a year ago, I started a position as a professor of mathematical demography and ecology at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, that's now where I spend the vast majority of my time. I still have collaborations going on with the people in Woods Hole. Uh, I work on mathematical ecology of all kinds, uh, focusing on populations of plants and animals and humans, both the development of the theory and the methods mm -hmm. and applications to interesting case situations, interesting populations, interesting problems. Mm -hmm. So you have mentioned that you, as we all know, work on population ecology as well as evolutionary biology. I think that one side of the story that many of our uh, blog users might not know about is how, when, and who got you started in this exciting field. Could you share your, your, your story with us a little bit? Sure. Um, I actually got introduced to this uh, very early, uh, to science in general and biology in particular and ecology even more particular. My father was an ecologist. Uh, he uh, got a PhD in the mid-1950s with Lamont Cole at Cornell University. Um, this was the time when Cole was doing his work on life history theory and um, My father was a biology professor, and so between um, childhood insect collections and uh, bird watching and tagging along on my father's field trips and lectures, um, I got exposed to a lot of different uh, aspects of science and biology. And by the time I headed off to uh, Michigan State University, I knew that I wanted to study ecology. Um, I, I have this memory of hearing a lecture at some point. I would have probably been in junior high school. Uh, the first time that I heard a, a talk about ecology and thinking to myself that the idea that organisms, that, it, that organisms should be studied in relation to the environments that they live in just mm -hmm. made so much sense. So I headed off to university uh, with the idea of studying ecology. At that time, um, ecology had much less of a scientific identity than it does now. There were basically hardly any degree programs in ecology or departments of ecology uh, anywhere. So, um, so I went into the zoology department uh, at Michigan State University with the intention of studying ecology. So let me get this straight. You have got a degree in zoology, and yet you publish a lot on plants. What's up with that? <laughs> well, the 
person who became my PhD advisor uh, at Michigan State, William Cooper, was a quantitative population ecologist studying mainly aquatic invertebrates. But he had very close connections to the ecologists in the botany department at the time. Uh, and a particularly important person in that was a guy named John Cantlin. Cantlin was a, uh, an early proponent of population thinking in plant ecology and also of field experimentation in plant ecology. He was president of the ESA in 1968, and he was good friends with John Harper, uh, who was president of the British Ecological Society at the same time. And in fact, at one point, he almost convinced Harper to move to Michigan State. Is that right? And as students, we were all extremely excited about the prospect of having the presidents of both the ESA and the BES on our campus at the same time. Unfortunately for us, Harper decided that North Wales was more attractive than East Lansing. And so it didn't happen. Um, Cantlin was the advisor of a number of students working on population problems in plants, including Pat Werner. And that group of students and the ecology students in the zoology department hung out together a lot and had joint seminars together and basically talked about population ecology, regardless of whether it was plants uh, or animals. Mm -hmm. Pat Werner was the teaching assistant in the undergraduate plant ecology course that I took, assigned me and my lab partner in that course an uh, experimental project for, for the course, which failed miserably and hilariously. And so I ended up uh, writing a theoretical paper for the course and have subsequently blamed Pat for my being a theoretician. <laughs> but that was that was sort of where the connection to plant ecology came from there even though the departments were separated the the ecology groups in uh in those two departments interacted a lot that's fantastic so Hal, you recently received the middle chefs award which is a very prestigious award given out to a demographer by the population association of america would you mind sharing with us the main scientific advancements that resulted in such a recognition? Uh, sure. The, this um, this award, the, the Mindel Sheps Award, is given out by the PAA every two years for contributions to mathematical demography. And um, the PAA is the largest uh, human demography organization, scientific society, this is one of their highest awards. I was I felt really honored to get this. It was um, basically awarded as in recognition of my work on matrix methods in demography and acknowledged that the methods were equally applicable to human mm -hmm. and non-human populations. It's interesting because that's that's a little bit unusual, uh, even though you know and I know. Uh, that human demography and population ecology share a, a, a lot of mathematical basis for the kinds of models and analyses that they do. The two fields tend to actually keep to themselves. You can count on one hand, maybe two hands, the individuals who have uh, crossed over back and forth a lot between human 
human demography and demography of plants and animals. I'm thinking of people, uh, so Joel Cohen, uh, Sripad Tuljapurkar, Jim Vopel, Ken Wachter, uh, all of whom, by the way, are, are previous winners of this Mendel Sheps Award, um, uh, have done this. So it was, uh, I was, I was particularly, I was particularly pleased mm-hmm. by it that it actually recognized the connection between human and and plant and animal demography. Uh, fantastic contribution. Very well deserved. Congratulations again, Hal. So the next question that we have for you is, um, I think that the bloggers of Journal of Ecology, particularly the early career scientists with an interest in, in plant population biology, would really benefit from some, from some advice from a senior accomplished scientist like you. Uh, what would you recommend for a plant population biologist as a start point to combine these two disciplines, which is field ecology on the one hand and mathematical approaches to demography. So I have I have maybe a different perspective on this than than a lot of people have. My thinking has always been that the only way to to think about problems in population ecology for sure, and probably ecology in general, the only way to think about those problems is mathematically. The reason is that those, by and large, people in those areas are concerned with rates. Mm -hmm. So if you think of populations, there's rates of mortality, rates of reproduction, rates of growth, rates of uh, spread in space rates of dispersal. These rates always balance out against each other. And so you know, for example, that there's mortality and you know that there's reproduction. The only way you can make sense out of the consequences of that is to know which one's bigger Mm -hmm. and how much bigger and what determines how much bigger. And that requires you to put the rates into a quantitative framework the difference between mortality being greater than reproduction and mortality being less than reproduction is the difference between a population going extinct and not going extinct. So it's a big, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So you need a mathematical framework in which to, to think about and analyze results from any kind of a population study. And so the, the whole history of population ecology uh, has basically been a history of the development of mathematical frameworks for for doing that, starting with very simple models, developing more and more sophistication and complexity and the ability to include more and more kinds of processes, mm-hmm. uh, biological processes. Mm-hmm. The, the question about how to how to learn that, mathematical material is a is an interesting one and I can talk about that if you want um, because it's a challenge for people um, trying to trying to get into doing population biology uh, I think that will be how, to, how to learn what they need to know mm-hmm. I think that I think that our our uh, listeners and our readers will really benefit from from a brief introduction to that so what, what would you recommend somebody walk in into a new degree in ecology with a clear interest in addressing demographic questions? 
so my uh, there's a there's a term in demography called individual stochasticity, mm-hmm. and it refers to the random events that happen to an individual as it makes its way through its life cycle. My particular mathematical training had a huge element of individual stochasticity in it. Um, by completely random event, uh, I ended up as an undergraduate serving as an unpaid volunteer lab assistant in the laboratory of Bill Cooper, who later became my PhD advisor. Um, he was a quantitative, statistically oriented kind of guy. He had, his students were very interested in all the mathematical, current theoretical and mathematical ideas. And, and as an undergraduate volunteer, I listened to their conversations and gradually started speaking up in the conversations. Mm-hmm. What was particularly valuable was that at that time, I was still taking the basic mathematics courses that an undergraduate in any branch of science might take. I was still taking basic calculus. Uh, I had taken a I had taken a matrix algebra class because my father had told me I should before I left for university. He said well, that uh, he was quite was. sure he was quite sure that it would be useful in ecology uh, someday. Although he wasn't sure how. <laughs> Mo- many my experience has been that many students uh, in ecology, population ecology in particular, arrive in graduate school before they discover that there are actually important mathematical issues Mm -hmm. at hand. And by that time, they've forgotten whatever mathematics they may have taken at the beginning of their undergraduate career because it hasn't sort of made any appearance for them between then and the point in graduate school where they begin to discover this. And it's very hard to go back and and catch up. Uh, In my case, I was still doing it and taking the basic classes and discovering that uh, there were interesting problems Mm -hmm. in population ecology that used this kind of mathematics. So Mm -hmm. that just inspired me to keep on taking courses, calculus, differential equations, matrix algebra. There was a project that began that was a collaboration between the ecology groups and the electrical engineering and system science department. So I took systems analysis courses mm-hmm. and stochastic process courses. Matrix models in population mm-hmm. biology were at this point in the late 1960s were, were pretty much unknown. Uh, Leslie's work was, was not uh, widely known at all. Mm-hmm. I stumbled on it after having taken a population ecology course that was, that was, all about life tables, Mm -hmm. stumbled upon Leslie's work and got really interested in trying to connect it to what I was learning about systems analysis. So Um, the publication, the second edition of your very uh, well-cited book uh, on the construction of matrix population models was published. That came out in 2001, if I'm correct. Was one of the motivations behind that book to make the matrix algebra world a bit more tangible and approachable to uh, ecologists so that they could avail from them? Yes. Um, the So the first edition of that book came out in 1989. And uh, 
my motivation for writing it was that there didn't exist at that point any compilation of of matrix population model mm-hmm. methods and analyses that would cover all of the different kinds of problems you could address mm-hmm. linear models to look at population growth rates and eigenvalues and eigenvectors stochastic models mm-hmm. density dependent models two sex models um all of these different types of there, there wasn't any place where that material yeah. was collected mm-hmm. uh for people and my goal was to make that was to make that accessible when mm-hmm. it came time to do a second edition i was amazed at how much more stuff there was to put in This leads to to the next natural question, which is, what about the third edition, Hal? Many of us are looking forward to uh, the new compilation of the new methods that you and I folks have developed. Uh, It's a good question, which I really wish you hadn't asked. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. So I have been been working on uh, ideas for a third edition. Mm -hmm. Um, The challenge to that is that there are, in fact, a huge amount of new methods that have appeared uh, and an even huger amount of applications mm-hmm. of those methods. And so I have been finding it really challenging to find a way to organize and present that mm-hmm. material without it becoming an encyclopedia of some sort. I understand, yeah. Um, so it's uh, the the field has grown enormously since 2001, um, particularly in areas related to stochastic models mm-hmm. and to nonlinear models, and um, and huge developments in the general area of sensitivity analysis. Mm-hmm. So, like I say, I have ideas for a third edition. There's a lot of of uh, work required to figure out how to organize all that material. Completely understand. Well, as a future user of that third edition, I hope that uh, I'll be I'll be telling all of our users will be very much looking forward to that coming out soon. Let me move on to another question, which is a bit of a uh, shifting. Let me. Yeah. Let me. Let me. Be, uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to go back to the yeah. what kind of math question. Mm-hmm. Uh, is good. Because there's there's um, a thing that I want to that I want to uh, say in that mm-hmm. um, when I think about the kind of math skills that are particularly useful for a would be population ecologist, um, a lot of it is um, stuff that is for studying dynamics mm-hmm. population. Dynamics is uh, a field, and so the basic sorts of math for that are calculus, ordinary differential equations, and linear algebra, mm-hmm. and something on probability and stochastic processes is good because so many of the things that happen in populations have a big stochastic mm-hmm. component to it. Um, and then there's statistics which you need to know a lot of. My recommendation, I I always have two recommendations for students about this. The first one is the recommendation to learn as much math as you can. And 
The second recommendation is to recognize that it doesn't end when you finish your course mm. or finish your degree. Um, that the process of continuing to learn new mathematical methods, new statistical methods is a never ending one. And uh, it's, it's fun, you mm-hmm. know, Where are certain you sense of the word fun um, to continue to just, I, I, I'm continually exposed to mathematical uh, ideas, mathematical methods that I have to go and learn about mm-hmm. even now. So uh, study as much as you can of mathematics and keep on doing it. What about, so you have mentioned quantitative uh, mathematics, of course, and statistics. What about the implementation of those two in actual programming? Uh, also, also a really important, um, uh, a really important skill to have. Um, there's, there's a benefit to knowing how to program almost in any language you want. So could be C, could be Fortran, could be R, could be MATLAB, because the act of writing a computer program forces you to break the calculation that you're doing down into steps that something as stupid as a machine can carry out. Mm -hmm. And that requires you to really think step by step through what it is that you're doing. Um, So uh, learning how to program is a really valuable skill to add to Mm -hmm. that list. Excellent. Thank you so and that's much. and that's different from that's different from just learning how to use a prepared package for something. Yes, those can be really useful also, but it doesn't have the same um, requirement that you think out the algorithm for what you're doing. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's those are excellent tips for for incoming graduates. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. So how, like I mentioned before, you're you're calling in from the Netherlands, but for a significant time, period of time in your academic career, you have actually been based in the U.S. So the question, the logical question would be, in addition to a much better idea, sorry for the Americans in the room, what what makes you want to go to the Netherlands? What are you doing there? I uh, applied for and I got a advanced grant from the European Research Council, which provides five years of very nice support to mm-hmm. develop a group and do a project. And the project that I proposed is one that combines a lot of the issues I've been thinking about for years now. Um, and I applied for this without much expectation that I would succeed, but I did. Mm-hmm. So this gives me a uh, very nice base of support for uh, uh, for carrying out research uh, for this for this next five years. Mm-hmm. My position in the U.S. at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution is at a is at a soft money institution. That is, researchers there are expected to bring in all of our salary plus all of the expenses for carrying out our research as well as funds if we want to support students or postdocs Mm. from research grants. And in the U.S., 
And I think in a lot of other places as well, but certainly in the U.S., that's becoming more and more difficult to do. Mm -hmm. There's more and more uh, pressure on the funding agencies. There's more competition for their funds. They have more budgetary constraints, and they're less and less willing to provide that kind of support. So having this opportunity to come here uh, to do this work was a – was a really good opportunity for me. I still have connections in Woods Hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a very good group, probably perhaps the largest theoretical ecology group in Europe at the University of Amsterdam mm-hmm. here. Um, so, and Amsterdam is a wonderful city. Mm, indeed. Yeah. And, and there's the beer. <laughs> Well, congratulations on, on that very well-deserved grant, and, and I am sure that you'll be enjoying Amsterdam. Um, so the next question that we would like to ask you is, you see, it seemed to, to me at least, and to I'm sure many of the audience in, in listening to this podcast, that plant population ecology has been, quote-unquote, ahead of the game in comparison to its sister discipline, that is animal population ecology, in some regards but quite behind in other regards. So you mentioned how you have done, uh, you have studied population dynamics of many organisms regardless of the taxonomic affiliation, plants, animals, bacteria. Given that this is targeting plant ecologists, what do you reckon are some fields that animal demorphers are quite ahead of in comparison to us plant ecologists that we could benefit from? I've thought about this question and I'm not, I'm not convinced that ahead and behind is actually a useful mm-hmm. distinction to make relative to this. The result of having – so I have done demographic analyses of uh, a pretty wide range. Next uh, – I, I have a project coming up uh, next year with uh, cyanobacteria that will actually get me – Nice. The bacterial end of the thing, so I can say that I I will be able to say that I've done demography from bacteria to whales, um, and the processes and the way you think about populations are the same for, for regardless of what kind of population you are mm-hmm. thinking of. There are particular aspects of any of any one population that may make certain aspects of a study more or less challenging. Plants are notoriously nice because they sit still, more or less. Um, some animals are particularly difficult to deal with because they don't sit still and they're really small. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it all boils down to being able to describe the life cycle. Mm-hmm being able to describe the rates at which those processes in the life cycle happen, Mm -hmm. to be able to quantify the way that the environment affects those rates, whatever environmental factors are of interest, and uh, to be able to say something about how that, Hutchinson used the word ecological theater, Mm -hmm. translates into evolutionary changes and, and selective pressures on uh, those populations as a function of their life cycles and the environment that they mm. live in. It's the same. It's the same conceptual question, regardless of whether it's plants uh, or animals that you're looking at. 
I'm, I'm really happy to hear that message because I think that way too often um, those two disciplines have remained, like you mentioned before, artificially divided for some reason. And it's only been a handful of people, you included, who have transitioned between them back and forth, back and forth. I think that there's much to learn from that. So here comes the probably most difficult question of the full interview, which is the job interview question. <laughs> where do you see yourself and where do you see the field in five or ten years? That is, if you had to choose maybe one or two vibrant new directions for plant population ecology, what would you say those are and how do you plan to contribute to them? I would say that questions relating to um, environmental impacts on plant populations, in particular, non-stationary environments. Mm -hmm. So almost all of the population ecology methods that we have are designed to analyze populations in stationary environments. Stationary environment is one whose statistical properties don't change over time. Mm -hmm. So it could be a constant environment, and we have well-developed theory for analyzing constant environments. It could be a periodic environment, as long as the cycle that the environment goes through continues to stay the same over time. It could be a stochastic environment, which fluctuates randomly with some sort of stochastic process, as long as the mean and the variance and the covariances of that stochastic process mm -hmm stay the same over time. If the environment is non-stationary, we have very little theory to go on. Mm -hmm. The dynamics are all transient. And there's been a history of looking at transient dynamics. Um, even in the first Teasel papers that I worked on, we analyzed some transient dynamics, but there isn't very good theory for doing that. And climate change is a non-stationary process. Mm -hmm. The whole thing that makes it climate change and not climate oscillations or climate fluctuations is the fact that there's a trend mm -hmm. and the statistical properties of the climate aren't staying constant. How do we analyze that? How do we extract the effects of that on populations. So that, I think, is one area that has got a lot of exciting prospects for developing things and has, in the, in the form of climate change, has a, has a very uh, compelling need to do it. Mm -hmm. um, another direction that I think is important um, is the development of uh, data collections. So you and I are both involved in the compadre and comadre database project, which uh, is in the process of making a large number of population projection matrices available for people uh, to do comparative analyses. This, I think, is a really important development because of the fact that uh, demographic data on plants or on animals is extremely uh, expensive mm -hmm. in money and in human effort 
to collect. And uh, as a result, no one individual can collect demographic data on a large number of species in a large number of places under a large number of conditions. Mm -hmm. And therefore, no one individual can get the data to make interesting comparisons across species or environments or growth forms. Uh, and so having that kind of data available to plant and animal population ecologists will uh, generate a lot of really exciting comparative studies. So I don't have to convince you of that since you're leading the project to develop that, but I think it's a really important um, important development. In human demography, there's been a similar uh, development of databases on human mortality and human fertility uh, that over the last decade, perhaps mm -hmm. at most, have completely revolutionized the analysis of human populations because there's this massive amount of information available to people to do comparative studies of the developments of of mortality and fertility patterns in in different countries around the world. So the same kind of thing will probably happen in plant ecology. Mm -hmm. Very much looking forward to that revolution. Thank you so much for sharing with us those two uh, vibrant directions. So Hal, you have published according to ISI about 180 plus peer-reviewed manuscripts, which is a really impressive body of work you have you have developed and contributed to the demographic world. Um, a number of them have been published in Journal of Ecology, and they range uh, very broad questions such as plant population dynamics or the evolution of senescence. I was wondering if you had to choose one. Which one is the one that you'd say has shaped the most your way of thinking about demography or science in general? So out of the, out of the papers that I've published in Journal of Ecology, the one that uh, has, the most, has had the most impact and been the most influential on me is a 1991 paper uh, on population responses to fire mm -hmm. in uh, tropical savanna grass species, Andropogon. Um, this was a collaboration with uh, Juan Silva from Universidad de los Andes in Venezuela uh, and, and people in his group. Um, and this was, as far as I know, this was the first time that uh, uh, anybody had used stochastic matrix population models coupled explicitly to a stochastic model of the environment. Mm -hmm. In this case, the environmental factor was fire. And so we built a Markov chain model for fires, which let us vary the frequency of fires mm -hmm. and the autocorrelation pattern of fires over time. If you didn't have to assume they were independent, they could be autocorrelated in various ways. Mm -hmm. And then use that uh, as the environment in which the stochastic matrix model operated and generate the long-term growth rates and stochastic uh, variability measures uh, as a function of the environment. Uh, we found that, that, that you could identify a very clear frequency of fire below which this grass species uh, could not persist. It required a certain minimal frequency of fire in order to in order to um, persist, which savanna ecologists had uh, 
figured was true for a long time, this actually was able to demographically mm-hmm. analyze it. Um, so I've used that approach and other people have used that approach since then. Uh, I've applied it to fires in other environments and other kinds of species, um, applied it to floods, applied it to rainfall, applied it to sea ice conditions for polar bears and for penguins. Eventually, after after that 1991 paper, the method got supplemented with developments for sensitivity analysis of those models. Uh, one of the other Journal of Ecology papers that I've written presented the methods necessary to do LTRE analysis for those models. Um, I've used them for studies of uh, individual stochasticity, both in longevity and in lifetime reproduction, mm-hmm. uh, usually with plant examples. Mm-hmm. So the approach to doing that to me is a particularly powerful one because we think of population dynamics as a response to the environment. And that's sort of basic ecology introduction thinking. This thing, this approach provides methods to actually develop demographic models in which the environment mm-hmm. is explicitly there in the model as a as a piece of the analysis. That's excellent. So one of the species that you mentioned you have been able to apply this approach to is penguin. Talk about which you recently published a paper in the prestigious journal Nature on the demography of the emperor penguins. Would you mind telling us about the main finding that you and your colleagues found in that paper? Uh, this was a this was a paper on the emperor penguin. Um, I've been involved in two studies of climate change uh, on populations, one on polar bears and one on penguins. So North Pole, South Pole, trying to cover the whole <laughs> globe. Uh, and these are in a sense, these are similar to the approach in that 1991 Journal of Ecology paper. Uh, they rely on a stage-classified matrix population model for the species. And uh, coupled to an environment, in both cases it was an environment that focused on sea ice conditions. Um, the environment isn't stationary, uh, so... A lot of the analyses were simulation studies of transient dynamics. Mm-hmm. In the case of the Emperor Penguin study, um, Stephanie Genouvrier, who's a very good seabird biologist, had come to Woods Hole to work with me as a postdoc uh, to develop models for the Emperor Penguin. And we've done several papers, the most recent one being this, this nature paper, where we couple the matrix population model for the penguins to projections of ice conditions that come from IPCC global climate models. Mm -hmm. And our first models were kind of crude. And, uh, even though, even though the, I say that even though the data that we were using, which comes from the French, uh, study of emperor penguins in Terre Adelaide, and it is the, it's been going on since the 1960s. As far as I know, it's the longest individual-based population data set for any species of anything, mm. uh, certainly for any penguin. Um, our first analyses were kind of crude, but in this, in this most recent paper, we extended them to look at 
not just that one colony that the French have studied, but to look at the global population, all the known colonies of emperor penguins around Antarctica. And Stephanie accumulated some very good climate scientists to work on this, along with the French seabird biologists. And we found that even though there's a lot of uncertainty in what happens, um, if the climate in Antarctica unfolds like the models say it will, by the end of this century, the emperor penguin is in serious mm. difficulties. The Many of the colonies will be eliminated and the remaining ones are going to be declining in abundance quite rapidly. Um, essentially by, it, again, with always with the caveat that if the climate unfolds in the way that the, the best climate models say it will, uh, conditions anywhere in Antarctica are not going to be suitable for penguins, mm. for, this, for this species of penguin. Anyway. So those, those are bad news indeed for these very charismatic species, but in a way, good news, if you allow me to say, for the power, to demonstrate the power of using a demogra demographic approach to a very important ecological question. So Hal, I was wondering if you could please give us maybe cite three publications or, or three books that, in your opinion, any young researcher in plant population ecology should read? Um, so that's always an interesting question. It's always, uh, it's always interesting to realize that, that things that you may have read at one point uh, are now considered to be uh, old literature by people. Um, things, that come, things that come to mind immediately, and partly, I think, because they were um, they were really influential to me. That doesn't mean they'll be inspiring or influential to other people. Um, Harper's 1967 paper called A Darwinian Approach to Plant Ecology mm -hmm. was, uh, was really influential uh, and is worth reading to get an idea of what it was like at a time when the idea of thinking about plants from a Darwinian, which means a population point of view, was considered a radical idea. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, it's a very well-written and uh, it's, a, it's a paper that's really worth reading. Mm -hmm. um, I always recommend uh, that students, regardless of whether they're looking at plants or animals, should read Hutchinson's Introduction to Population Ecology. So this book was published in the late 70s, and but it's but it's essentially the material that Hutchinson taught for decades mm -hmm. at at Yale. And you should read it because there's nothing else like it. There is nobody, probably never has been anybody with the kind of historical and global range of knowledge about populations that Hutchinson had and that he writes about in that book. So it's just full of all kinds of fascinating stuff. Um, it's, I always recommend that people should read Darwin, Origin of Species. Um, it's, it's written in 19th century 
prose style, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's well worth reading. Especially there's a there's one version of it that you can find, which is the first edition of it, rather than the sixth edition that that by which time Darwin had modified a lot of things in it. Um, so I would add that to the list. I would say people should read Darwin. Fantastic. Well, we'll we'll make sure to. Um add all these citations in the works as a link in their blog yeah, that will yeah. deal with this interview. So a little birdie called Facebook, namely, tells me that when you're not working and you're not traveling to go to conferences, you really like going to cafes. What is the Holocaust away from the office that most of us don't get to see? Uh, so my, my main outside the office activity um, for uh, a very long time now, I have been a practitioner and a teacher of Tai Chi Chuan. Mm-hmm. So Tai Chi is a very old Chinese martial arts exercise system, meditative system. Uh, I've studied it for a really long time now. And uh, find it a really valuable, find it A, a really fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure that it's valuable uh, support for being in science. Um, careers in science are notoriously stressful. And uh, the practice of Tai Chi is a notoriously good stress uh, relief. And so... Uh, that's my that's my main hobby or my main non-academic activity. Uh, thinking about science over coffee or wine or beer in a good cafe is also really a good thing to do. Fantastic. Well, I would like to conclude this interview by thanking you, thanking you, Hal, for making the time to chat with us. And I'm sure that uh, readers of the blog in the video, the audio, and the written version will really appreciate the time that you have invested with us. So thank you so much, Hal. Oh, you're welcome. It's been fun. I hope it's helpful. Cheers.